Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a a founder that, you know, the 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 journey, I mean that that he's been, you know, all his life is is so inspiring. I mean, from from being in a refugee camp, you know, to landing in Canada and now to building a, a hyper, hyper growth business, building, scaling, exiting. He's done it a few times. So I think that we're going to learn quite a bit. And I think that the insights are going to be remarkable for all of you that are building and scaling right now your own company. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Hanif Joshagani. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So originally born in Iran, and I know that uh, your family escaped where you were almost two years old. And, and that was quite a journey. So tell us about this and tell us about, you know, how was your upbringing? Yeah. Um... You know, my family escaped. Uh, we actually escaped over the mountains once I was old enough um, uh, using uh, Kurdish smugglers. And we didn't make it very far. We got, you know, we made it to as far as Iraq and we were in camps there until, um, you know, uh, basically things got real dangerous there. And, uh, you know, we, um, the process got uh, accelerated. For especially in the beginning, for you know, for the most uh, you know vulnerable people like young kids and stuff to get refugee status and move over to uh, you know countries that were willing to take us in. So I arrived uh, in Canada. I stayed with a effectively a foster family that the government was uh, supporting in the process, and then my parents came shortly thereafter. But how long did it take from the moment that? You guys escaped Iran to landing in Canada. Oh, I spent most of my younger years in in the camps. I, I from the time I was like one and a half to I was like about thirteen and a half. I think I was in the camps. So twelve years almost in in refugee camps. What what was life in those refugee camps like? Honestly, um, if if that's all you know, it's actually not that bad. Um, you know, people only really struggle with hardship hardship is a relative concept um if all you know is the camps then you you actually don't think it's all that bad it's only when you've seen better and then you have a memory of something better 
and then you get end up in the camps that you really um you, that it really affects you like the people the kids that came and you know one and a half years old i didn't know anything but but the kids that you know ended up in the camps or in refugee statuses or went through really extreme adverse life events but they had memories of a better time they struggled a lot more and i guess uh, out of this experience you know how do you think it has shaped you who you are today and and also the way that you view life and and your own personality too um i think there's an element of drive it's not just that it, it's the whole experience from from the camps to toronto to to the hard work that went into kind of really catching up in academia and stuff like that and getting to a point where I eventually ended up with a scholarship to University of Chicago uh, to really working hard after University of Chicago to make a, a life for myself in capital markets to getting a full scholarship to University of Toronto for my MBA. Like all of it, it just became this mentality of, you know, you, you know, never let adversity get in your way. Um, and always challenge yourself to do more. Um, I think that the prevailing mentality ends up being something akin to, you know, challenging yourself and pushing yourself and fighting is like breathing. And you should always be fighting and you should always be challenging yourself. Otherwise, you are stagnant and, you know, that you might as well be, uh, you know, you may as well just lay down and give up, you know? So it just became this mentality that life is about struggle and life is about never being satisfied and always pushing yourself to do more. Um, and yeah, and it becomes like a mentality. I hear you. I hear you. And, and obviously the scholarship of New York, you know, really, really changed everything for you because that kind of like put you on track to also get the scholarship for the undergrad and then also for your, MBA. So, so how did that scholarship happen? Um, a fam, a, my family agreed to sponsor me, and I ended up like the uh, the money got you know taken care of for me to go to this great high school for the end, just the last part of high school. And the thing that it really changed uh, the experience that really changed in that high school um, was, uh, you know, the mentality was oh, every kid was trying to get into a top university, and every kid was taking advanced placements classes and you know, the, the standards were completely different than the schools that I was exposed to, um, you know, back in Toronto. Um, not that there isn't good schools in Toronto, it's just I wasn't really going to them. Um, and I was in some rough neighborhoods. And so uh, it really transformed my life. I went from someone that didn't realize I had no exposure to anything other than my narrow scope of what the world is all about. And then I go to this school in New York and it's like, the the status of the families the the businesses that the parents have been involved in just it exposed me to a part of the world that I'd never seen before and I immediately knew that I wanted to kind of aspire to achieve and earn a place in that world for myself and for my family and that became a motivational factor from that point on like there was nothing that was going to get in my way after that got it so obviously after your undergrad and doing some investment banking, then you do your MBA. And this uh, definitely opens you even more to the capital markets. So how did you develop like this curiosity or this interest into, let's say, business and economics? Um, 
honestly, like when I first went to university, I, 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 everybody was convinced that because I could really do a good job talking and arguing that I would be a lawyer. I was actually on the debate team and the mock trial team and, and things like that. I was good at math as well. And that was like my one really strong uh, uh, area where I actually was natural at it and have to, you know, work super hard at it. But um, I really didn't realize I was going to end up in economics, but and, and and open up the world of finance. That happened at University of Chicago. Um, it's a world-renowned economics program. And I decided to dip my toes in at first, and I immediately fell in love with it. Um, and I kind of just started to explore what the world could be about after that. And I started to do internships at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange while I was working, while I was in school. And um, it just exposed me again to a whole new world of business and finance. And I didn't know it was going to lead to entrepreneurship at first, but I just, I loved it. I loved all of the stuff. And, and the first time I stepped onto the Mercantile Exchange, it blew my mind. I was just like, wow, what an amazing, what an extraordinary place. And so um, I worked really hard and, uh, you know, uh, focused on, you know, math and economics and things like that became my prime. I still was interested in all the other stuff. I still took a lot of political science and, uh, you know, globalization and all of these other types of courses as well, because I felt like there was a nice synergy between that and economics. And so uh, that but that ended up being my main focus area. University of Chicago has that impact on people, even though you don't love the economics going in there, you end up loving economics once you're there. Got it. And then obviously you go into, you know, investment banking and here you are, you have a uh, the safety of, of having, you know, the nine to five and, you know, like the nice salary too. And, and obviously for you, I mean, I'm sure that your family was super proud too. I mean, why, why did you decide to complicate your life and to say no to all of that and start your own business? Um, once I came back to when, when the investment banking thing was interesting. Um, honestly, I learned a lot in investment banking, but I didn't love it. And, you know, like, you know, I think investment banking culture has changed a lot since I worked there. But after I did my MBA at University of Toronto and I went into investment banking, I learned a lot about business at a much higher level than I ever had before. Working in capital markets, looking at M&A deals and massive financings for public companies and things like that. But working at an investment bank didn't seem like it would be good enough um, to consistently drive my passion. You were you know, especially, you know, as a, you know, associate or whatever it is, like, you know, if, as long as if you're not a managing director and you're not running the show, you're effectively a cog in a massive machine. And it just, while I was great from a learning perspective and I built some really good skill sets there, I knew uh, very quickly while I was in the banking that it would be a stepping stone, no matter how much money was involved, that it wouldn't be what was going to motivate me to work hard for the rest of my life. So then it let's needed talk about... to be something about passion and it needed to be something passionate. And it needed to be something where I, you know, I, I had to do something for myself. I couldn't be a small part of a massive machine. So then let's, let's, let's talk about you coming out of that massive machine and, and launching CoreWest. So, so what were you guys doing at CoreWest? Uh, CoreWest was a, basically a boutique advisory firm. The thesis was, you know, we, you know, a couple of us guys together got together and we were going to basically, uh, introduce, you know, bulge bracket, uh, banking capabilities to smaller deals 
using a very lean business setup and infrastructure uh, to generate value for small time entrepreneurs um, in, in Alberta, which is a very enterprising entrepreneurial place. Um, it worked. We had some decent success. Um, and but what we ended up, the business ended up evolving to is as we start to generate fees and uh, build a half decent business, um, we decided to parlay those fees into um, investing directly in some of the deals that we were getting involved in and becoming effectively business partners with some of the people that were coming in the door uh, looking for business support. Um, so we would do strategic reviews, help bring in lending, but then, you know, put in some of our own money as well. That was really my first foray into like entrepreneurship and merchant uh, through the merchant banking um, process. And then one of the businesses that we got some exposure to, um, I really liked what they were doing. I thought there was a great opportunity there. Um, and we decided to kind of really run with it. And I decided to focus more and more, more on my time with it. Uh, to build to help evolve the business concept, um, and I brought in some of my uh, uh, close associates who are. So, for example, it was a hardware product. I we had a vision for it needed software and satellite connections and reengineering and stuff like that. So I brought in uh, some of the resources to help make all of that stuff happen, um, and we built a really good business out of it. We landed a bunch of contracts. The business was called Aspis, and then. We monetized our stake in that to then parlay that into our first true SaaS company, which was initially called Investaware. Eventually, it was called Ainzio, and we built that into a decent business. Um, and um, we uh, did a part capital raise, part divestiture, um, and where family office took over uh, half the business basically. And um, through that process. I created some liquidity for myself and I took that liquidity and I'd had the idea for Cement. Um, and I led our initial round into Cement uh, to launch the business using a, uh, the initial round of which I, a friends and family round, which I led. So obviously here, you know, like you were jumping from the advisory side to really the operator side and to seeing the full cycle. So I guess, say, yeah. you know, out of, let's say, Aspis and, and AIMCO, like, what were the the top three lessons that you that you took away, you know, from that those experiences? Um, uh, there was a bunch of really important ones. I think one of the things that I really learned that was super important is that um, you you have to make sure that you have the right team, um, and you have to make sure that you have an idea that you're very very passionate about. But most importantly. You have to make sure that you don't let the passion take over the the common sense stuff around really doing your diligence and validating the idea and doing the research and validating the demand and the viability and feasibility of the idea and the whether the people would pay for it, whether it's doable, what the size of the market is, like really doing your work before you start to build something and then try to jam it into the market, right? Like it's you know, I try to say, I say this all the time. Um, it's a lot easier to pivot with an idea than it is to pivot with, a, um, uh, pivot with a product. So that was one really, really key part of it. Um, setting the business up the right way early on, funding it the right way. Those were all key lessons that I learned. And the other really, really important lesson that I learned 
um, for me anyway, is that um, eventually, and it works for some people, right? Where there's no CEO, there's no single person that the accountability rolls up to. But I knew that that wasn't going to work for me again. Um, you know, having like at, at, um, uh, at Amesio, I had uh, really great friends of mine and I'm still really close to all of them. But there was a sense of like, this is an equal partnership between a couple of people that got this business going together. Yeah. And sometimes I always felt like, especially if those people aren't always in sync, which never happens, it creates a lot of kind of like, um, and now they do have a CEO, but like, uh, it creates a lot of inertia and it, it creates some conflict and are we moving in the right strategic direction? So one was, that was one of the really important lessons that I learned. Um, the other important lesson that I learned is that, you know, no matter what you do in, in a business, running a business is incredibly hard. Um, no other business venture that I got myself involved in was I really, really down to my bones passionate about solving it wasn't a problem it was an opportunistic thing every single time um whereas with cement it wasn't like that at all it was an idea you know synthesized from scratch at a dinner um and it wasn't like some opportunity was sitting in front of me and i tried to capitalize on it there was no opportunity i came up with an idea by chance and then i went deliberately and i got super passionate about solving it and I very, very methodically and deliberately put together the opportunity to go chase it. And that North Star, that passion for the why, really, I, in my opinion, pushes you to work harder, to see a bigger vision, to align people, to lead your team to new great heights, to create culture, to all of those things that uh, are, the, in, my, in my opinion, the ingredients of success in a company. Whereas if the primary driver is just making money and having success, I think it's a lot harder to make all of those things happen. And that's the key difference between what I'm doing at Cement and everything else. The tip of the spear at Cement for me was my personal, almost passion, obsession with solving this problem that helps so many at-risk, vulnerable people in society get to a better place um that north star didn't exist for me until i you know started cement and it's been a huge difference maker so then let's talk about how you meet your partner at cement oh uh, yeah tiffany um i know i've tiffany and i've been friends for a very long time uh you know and you know when i was at cement at amesio uh she'd come in and done some consulting for us um, and I immediately uh, built a strong relationship with her, and I immediately saw how talented she was. And over the course of like the next, I don't know, six months to a year, I kept coming up with ideas to try, hey, I'm investing in this thing, or hey, I'm doing that thing. And I keep bringing her ideas, and she's like, Kenny, there's no why here. And I'm not like, it, it, unless there's a strong social good and strong why. I'm not going to leave what I'm doing today. She was working at a company called Tiny Eye uh, to do something else. And so I never quite understood her uh, strong connection to why. And she can't get behind any business, no matter how lucrative, unless there's a why. Until the I'd had the idea for Cement, and I finally dawned on me why a why is so important. 
And the only phone call that I made was to Tiffany. And, you know, I, we went out for some drinks and really on a napkin, I wrote down the business plan and the idea. And we sat down there and she had a job, to, uh, she had a job offer to go be CEO of an established company with like, I don't know, like 10, 15 million in revenue or something like that. And she picked this highly speculative, you know, business plan on a napkin uh, with me instead of that sure thing. And it finally dawned on me how much she meant that stuff that for her, the why matters more than everything. And it's been an incredible partnership and we're incredibly complimentary. And uh, I think the rest is history. So then what ended up being the business model so that the people that are listening understand cement? Uh, sure. It's, it's interesting, actually. The business model has been fairly consistent since day one because we did so much work up front, like six to eight months of research before we even wrote a line of code. Um, so we're very deliberate about the way we started to build the company, um, which I think is another important lesson. Um, but the business is effectively, we've built a platform to help orchestrate and execute um, you know, customer engagement and treatment campaigns that are very, very intelligent for massive organizations where they have to do that for millions of customers, at-risk customers. So if you think about any big company that has a large base of people that are at risk of leaving due to delinquency or retention issues or whatever, uh, say a large telco or a bank, um, all of those companies are basically trying to uh, engage with millions of customers every single day. And a lot of it, they try to do through, you know, uh, brute force almost, right? Like lots of call centers, lots of, you know, like unintelligent, like the things that don't learn and iterate and aren't like highly targeted. So they just overwhelm you with a bunch of emails and SMS and a bunch of call center stuff. And instead of that, because it's based, it's almost like trying to overwhelm the customer into submission. And instead, what our platform allows them to do is to be a lot more behaviorally targeted so that you're getting the right message with the right tone of voice to the right consumer so that they engage back with the right mindset that, hey, it's not about hammering you and overwhelming you and submitting you. It's about, it's about valuing you as a customer and treating you as an individual instead of a transaction so that these people engage back the right way so that not only do you uh, cure whatever is going to cause them to leave, whether it's delinquency or unhappiness or whatever, but you fortify the relationship with the brand so that you extend and improve the lifetime value of that customer. And if you can do that across millions of customers, you not only can you create a bunch of operational efficiencies, but you can extend the lifetime value across the entire portfolio. Got it. And how much capital have you guys raised for the business so far? Um, uh, let's see here. Probably are just north of 60, 63 million USD. And the reason why I'm just guessing a little bit is because some of the early raises were in Canadian dollars. Um, but our series B was 52 million. And before that we raised about maybe 10 or 11 million USD. So 63 ish. And obviously the, the latest, the Series B, uh, I mean, we're talking about an announcement of early May. So how the hell did you guys pull off, you know, a financing round of this of this nature, you know, in the middle of, of, of a pandemic? Yeah, that was an interesting one. Um, you know, 
the demand. So we had a, we have a great uh, shareholder base, um, and then that's been deliberate. Like we had one of our top priorities in selecting investment partners has always been the the quality and character of the individuals and their reputation through time. So whoever the lead investor is, we always wanted to make sure that that person had the right values and the right character. So our Series A was led by Ignition, um, and the GP there, John Connors, is actually on our board. Um, uh, and the Series B was led by Inovia, and the lead growth partner there, uh, one of the lead growth partners there, uh, Dennis Cabellman, was the former CEO of Microsoft, uh, of Research in Motion. He's on our board. And these guys are just, their reputations are amazing. And in the case of Dennis, who led the Series B, he was, there was a lot of conviction at Anovia about the mission and the problem that we're solving. And we communicated with them regularly. And they'd given us a term sheet right before the pandemic got really, really bad. And when the pandemic got really bad, we were able to demonstrate that, listen, guys, you know, the mission that we're on to help solve this problem of customer engagement for large companies is more important than ever because COVID has, you know, negatively impacted call center capability and the behavior of consumers is changing faster than ever. And the more violent and volatile the change of consumer behavior and consumer risk is, the less reliable backwards looking risk and adjudication models are going to be. And the more relevant real time analysis of consumer engagement, intent, and behavior from the actual engagement strategies will be. And that's exactly what our platform can do is it's like, you know, run campaigns, measure intent and behavior, and learn and iterate at a high velocity so that it's live and dynamic all the time and it stays up with the change in behavior of your consumer. So, we basically made the case that, look, not only is are we going to be okay through COVID, but more importantly, the mission that we're on is now, instead of being on the fringes, is taking center stage. Like the consumer, instead of being like 10 or 20% of all consumers that need our help, this could get up to like half the consumers that need our help. And the call centers aren't going to be as helpful as they used to be. And so this is exactly the time that cement should be well-funded so that it can stand tall and live up to its social mission, which then automatically results in building a great business very quickly. And that's exactly and, what's been happening. And you were talking there about values and also, you know, getting that alignment around the mission, you know, like with the investors that are the lead investors, right? Um, I guess, especially for the folks that are listening, like, how do you go about, you know, really making sure that the alignment is for real? Because in many instances, as you know, I mean, it's like the dating phase, everything looks beautiful. Uh, but then, you know, eventually, you know, like the, the, the entrepreneurial journey is full of ups and downs. And you want to make sure that, that these people are going to be there and they're going to, you know, roll up their sleeves and, and jump in if they need to do that rather than, you know, maybe like treating you as a write-off and going to the next investment. So how do you really make sure that the alignment is for real? Um, there's a couple of things. So the first thing that I've consistently done is, uh, spend a lot of time. Don't treat your finances as transactional experiences. Um, if you are, if you're on a broad based, you know, financing process, 
and you're talking to everyone, but you're only talking to them right when you need money. It's really hard to get a feel for how authentic those relationships are and to exactly to your point, how they're going to persevere through time. Uh, what we've always done instead is have a very kind of like, you know, a mentality around treating financing as a journey rather than a set of transactions. And so we engage with people like we engage with the Series B guys, you know, right after the Series A and with the Series A guys the same and with the seed guys the same. Like we spent a lot of time with each one before we needed a bunch of money and we make sure of it. The other thing is we did a lot of diligence into, well, how did they, instead of just taking their references, we went to our network and found either longtime multi-decade friends of theirs or companies that have flatlined and hit hard times that, you know, you can go and crunch base and be like, okay, what did they invest in that didn't go well? Let's go talk to that CEO. So it was, a very deliberate process of assessing their character over time, their reputation over time, and how they handle adversity, but finding the way to assess those things through our own network. So for example, in the case of Dennis, the fact that I had I knew Dennis was the CEO and CFO of Research in Motion. Well, one of my like, you know, one of my investors who led our seed round, Maor, who, um, who I've known for a very long time to the point where he, he was at my wedding and he's become one of my best friends in the whole world. Well, Maor was a, an institutional equity guy who used to travel all over the world with the research and motion guys, helping them raise capital in their high flying days. And so, you know, I went and I made sure that I had really strong references for the character of the individual. And the same thing with Ignition, I went and I found companies that, you know, hey, if something didn't go well, how did they treat you guys? So I, I, I took the process of finding the right partner very, very seriously. And frankly, the valuation was not even like, I always figured that if you find the right person and you spend enough time with them, they get a non-transactional view into your abilities as an entrepreneur and an executive. And you get a view into them outside of the shotgun financing process, then that that rapport, that authentic bond will ensure that when you do get down to like valuation and stuff like that, you're both going to treat each other fairly. And so our, our priority was never to go chase the highest valuation. It was find the highest, the best partner to create long-term value. And I love that you say that because at the end of the day, you know, in a true partnership, everyone wins. And it's not in a negotiation where someone loses and someone else wins. So I, I like that, that you touched on that. So, so Hanif, uh, you also were mentioning that, you know, times like this definitely have given a nice push, you know, to cement. And, and I want to ask you here, like, where do you see things heading, you know, like for you guys and I guess for your space as a whole? Um, that's, a, that's an interesting question. I, I think the view of what cement is, you know, um, Cement is not just a technology company. Like we, we are synthesizing at a foundational level in a way it's never been done before, a bunch of sciences. So, you know, we are like synthesizing in equal parts at a foundational level, human sciences, like behavioral science and psychology, along with computer science, and then lending it all horsepower with data science and AI. And we're doing it in such a unique way that I think the future will become um, 
expanding the user cases of this thing. So if you remember what I said was cement is all about uh, engaging at-risk customers. Well, today, if we define at-risk as people that are past due, tomorrow at-risk could be anything. Like if you think about what cement is, we are the world's best, in my opinion, designer NyQuil for consumers. It's like if something is ailing you, we can understand what is and give you the best NyQuil in the world so that it doesn't get any worse and you don't need prescription medicine or a hospital. So that's really the business that we're in. Eventually, we're going to expand the definition of that, get into the vitamin business and get into more and more user cases. But at the end of the day, I think that the impact that and we won't be the only company that does this. I think there is a, a big push into this. I'm a big believer in, um, you know, focusing on consumer empathy is going to be the new focus of strong brands. So any company that's all about lifetime value, that values their brand and views their brand with consumers as a pillar of their overall organization, and they view themselves as a social good company as much as a profitable company, they're always going to be about understanding customers and consumer empathy. So I think the trend that we've, I feel, started to pioneer will start to um, expand into all parts of these consumer companies. That's amazing. And, uh, you know, one of the questions that I typically ask the guests on the show is, uh, obviously now, I mean, your experience is remarkable. You've done multiple rodeos and obviously now with Cement, really taking it to a whole nother level. Uh, but if you had the opportunity to go back in time and, and have a chat with your younger self, with that younger honey of that, was maybe thinking about like starting and doing something. If you could go back in time and tell that younger honey if, you know, one piece of business advice before launching a business, what would that be and why, knowing what you know now? You know, I, it's, it's interesting that, that, that the key thing in launching a business um, is making sure you have, and, and having success at it, you know, there's, a, there's the old proverb that, you know, amazing founders and amazing execution people um, can take average ideas and turn them into phenomenal companies. But an average entrepreneur or a below average entrepreneur can take the best idea in the world and take it nowhere. And I truly believe that. I think, uh, you know, and so if I was going to look back to my younger self, the first thing I would learn to do is to a works for some amazing entrepreneurs even if you have to take a massive pay cut or do whatever i think the value of working for amazing successful entrepreneurs and being a student of the game not just doing the tasks that they assign you but learning and sucking in every like imagine like i i am where i am and i'm very proud of it but if i had to look back I would have picked to go work at early days PayPal or early days eBay or something like that. Even if I had to go work for free and bus a restaurant at night, like learning from the best and learning from these high growth companies, I think lays an incredible foundation for your future. And the second part of it is don't chase money, chase passion. I think, you know, if you, if you chase money, you're, you're never going to achieve greatness. Whereas if you, even if your passion is, cutting the best hair in the world, you could end up owning the biggest hair franchise in the whole world and stuff like that. Like, you know, the thing that fuels you and the thing that allows you to, 
uh, persevere and to you know convince other people to join you and investors to join you and lead teams and all of these key things is how much you really believe in your mission. And can you get other people to believe in that mission as much as you do? And I think that's a key to entrepreneurship because at the end of the day, being an entrepreneur is fundamentally being a leader. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, I, and I've never done this before. So I'm going to, there's always a first time and I'm going to expand on this question. And if you could go even earlier to that time where you were 13 years old and you were in a refugee uh, camp in Iraq, what would you tell yourself? Hang in there. Things are going to get better. And, uh, you know, that would be the big focus. Um, you know, just be tough. You know, I, I was tough, but you know, I, uh, you know, I could have just hang in there and be tough and things will get better. That would be the advice. Wow. Very profound. Well, Hanif, so powerful. Really thank you so, so much. And, and I guess for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Um, you know, obviously on LinkedIn is one way. Um, and then the other way is my email address. I, I always try to be responsive. So Hanif at cement.com. Amazing. Well, Hanif, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thank you very much. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to AlejandroCremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.